0: Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Jinto called Life Under Quarantine. My name is Cornelius McGrath and I am your host. In this series I will be talking to the everyday entrepreneurs, students, athletes, artists, bartenders, chefs, reporters, teachers and hospital workers about how they are finding meaning, clarity and opportunity in a time where there seems to be none. Brad Grossman lays claim to have one of the most interesting jobs in the world, He's the founder and CEO of Zeitgeist, spending his days advising and nights inspiring some of the most curious minds on the planet, inside and out of media and business. Brad describes himself as a brain booster, a contextualizer, somebody who helps people commit to rising to their fullest intellectual, creative and leadership potential. Above all, I admire Brad because he's curated the time and space in his own life to continually ask one question, why? In this episode, we talk about how Brad makes sense of a world that is moving faster than ever before, why curiosity is the prelude to any creative pursuit, what it takes to understand the heartbeat of what matters for the people that you serve, and why you can no longer define yourself
1: by your career alone.
0: Brad Grossman, welcome to Life Under Quarantine. How are you?
1: Nice to have you, Cornelius. It's uh, great to have met you very recently, and uh, you're very interesting to me, so I'm glad that I could be you know, on this podcast or whatever this is uh, (laughs) and and exchange brain, brain brainwaves. Exactly.
0: You can definitely lay claim to probably having one of, if not the coolest job in the world. Um, (laughs) in my opinion, in my opinion,
1: even more than an astronaut, maybe,
0: maybe I think they might just have you beat. but let's say for those, for those on earth, earth, you're up there. And, uh, obviously you were Brian Grazer's ideas curator. And then you then spun out your own business site guide. How the hell does this start?
1: It's, I'm this whole, like, bring
0: me it's, there. I want to go back.
1: Why do you think that what do you think my you said I had the most interesting job? What what is that? I'm just so curious how you define I, it. I've been trying to define it for years. So. I
0: and that's what I think. I think there's an element of it that can't be defined and it means different things to different people. So that's why I resounded in my notes to saying you're a second brain
1: very sweet I open up like a brain booster and uh, contextualizer right like my job is to help people mm. uh, rise to their fullest intellectual creative and leadership potential right and you know when I was doing this for Brian yeah this was actually before I started my business I like guide as you know yes. right uh that, is that kind of shifted gears because, A, I had to, because I had to be more of a need to have than a nice to have. Uh, But also there was a white space or need for my clients to really understand how the world was changing so quickly Mm. so that you can uh, uh, best navigate the last decade, I would say, of innovation and disruption Uh, And what does it mean for most of my clients and how do they respond uh, and how do they uh, shape their forward moving strategies Mm. and Like you said, what I do is customize for, I would say, every zeitgeist or time period, but also for individuals. And when I worked with Brian, he called me his cultural attache, which basically was to curate the world of ideas, distill it, synthesize it. And he always had a voracious curiosity. He wrote a book about it um, and loved meeting with interesting people. So my job was to be his tutor, his cultural tutor, and the purpose, which were his words, to be... Uh, culturally relevant and mm. creatively inspired right. so yeah I did have that job between the years of 2003 and 2008 and I took a little bit of break of trying to reconnect with my own curiosity and kind of uh, disassociate uh, this second brain from somebody and uh, kind of use those or that skill set to help others uh, on an mm. individual basis. And it became more of a uh, more scalable basis with, you know, this new thing, culture class that I'm doing. So uh, yeah, so I got that crazy job and like, maybe it's more fascinating and interesting of what my jobs were and my crazy path to getting here. um, than actually the job being, Interesting, because at the end of the day, I'm an educator, inspire, coach, mm, uh, wow. strategist, um, and uh, my my job is basically to help people be better than they are today.
0: Right. So I have a million questions. I have, I have a million questions. So, and the the important thing I like about the coverage you've had is it's clear to me, at least from what I've read, that the curiosity was way before Brian. Way, way, way before. I mean.
1: Oh yeah, that was. And, and I think Brian helped me understand that um, mm, because mm. I never really thought of myself as a creative person early on because I wasn't a great uh, – I, 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 when I went to – which is interesting, when I look backwards, I definitely see my creativity, but it wasn't – a standardized type of creativity like i wasn't good in art class back in the day right. uh, i never thought of myself as creative uh, but i think creativity is really all about curiosity and it's connecting ideas. Yeah. So, yeah, right. my it's, I'm seeing my nephew now. And he always says, why, 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 why? Right. It's right. so annoying. I mean, I love him. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I think that's how I was. I, I remember that I just kept on asking questions during movies when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, like, why did Dorothy's house, you know, blow up in the right. air? I don't understand how it went from black and white to color. Right. Why uh, she wearing uh, red shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Every time, and then I'd be like, "Why am I crying?" <laughs> so, yeah, curiosity. I would say is probably one of my genetic skill sets, uh, yeah, or personality traits that got me to be doing what I'm doing.
0: So, so I'm somebody who who likes to think they're curious and will not hesitate to email someone if I think they're interesting. This being case in point, but. You seem like you, you created this. I mean, I read that you would aggressively, quote-unquote, scrutinize Variety Magazine for opportunities and fax a letter of congratulations to anyone who had been promoted. And you'd ask for a 10-minute meeting. What? what, what on earth, how did you come up with that idea?
1: Hmm. Well, back to the curiosities, I, I would say my next, uh, you know, uh, I guess, attribute was that I was an autodidact, so I taught myself how to learn Mm. in a way that is really the heartbeat of what I do right now, which is to help people learn what they need to know, right? And I did that to myself. And it definitely stemmed from insecurity uh, because when I started first grade, uh, I started in the lowest reading group and the lowest math group. Uh, like when we, I don't know, I mean, you're, like you said, you were, you're a lot younger than me. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, we had back in, I guess this was, I was born in 75, so first grade, I don't know, six years old. So this was 1971. Yeah. And uh, our, Mrs. Roos was my teacher and she would say to me, uh, or, or she would do these timed math tests. Mm. Like we would have to take a, uh, a piece of newsprint. Uh, back then, uh, because paper was expensive, we were writing on newsprint, which was like cheap. It was like newspaper paper. Yeah. And we would have to fold it up in fours and she would go uh, like one plus one, you know, and then you would have to write the answer like uh, in each quadrant. So you had like eight math problems to solve like like that it was like a time typing test yeah i also used to get so nervous about and i guess i was so i felt so shamed uh that i was in the lowest reading group i was also the shortest person in the class too so it's like i needed to figure out how to kind of elevate myself and obviously i couldn't make myself be taller so i would say two things i definitely was a charmer uh yeah. and it's because of my curiosity and my teachers let just like you know this kid always wanted to learn more and do better yeah and then the other part was like i said like insecurity like i you know i wasn't good at sports i wasn't good in art class so i said to myself i'm gonna be good at school and uh you know i th- I, you know i guess you could have called me a brown noser back in the day yeah i i uh literally because i wasn't good in sports uh and therefore the, i didn't play recess with the sport with the in sports during recess with the other boys uh i actually played charlie's angels in 1972 with, <laughs> with these three uh girls who were my best friends so i you know, I, I I just made an effort to like hang out with the teachers during lunch, yeah, and, and uh, or recess instead of like feeling, you know, I, I know it sounds sad, uh, but I obviously got over it. That you know, I didn't feel connected to the boys. Uh, it was a different world back then. Yeah. I, I just wanted to dance, but you know, culture didn't allow me to do that or act. Uh, so uh, I would hang out with the teachers and figure out like what they wanted like what it, What should I know to uh excel on that test right and like I, I even did it in college like when I wasn't and I went to a, a school that was so different because I went to public school in Jersey and then I went to Brown I didn't understand that culture and so when I would get C's on my papers yeah I basically would just go in and like I want to know how to get the A just tell me Right. Like, like, what do I need to know? What do you think I should focus on? What am I not understanding? And since ninth grade, I never got lower than a B. I mean, a lower than an A yeah. straight A's. It was crazy. So, you know, the, it was that curiosity of trying to figure out how to succeed. And that led to, as you, as you basically said was, you know, I did, I wanted to be pre-med cause that's all I thought. Uh, to be successful in 1993 when I went to college mm. uh, I thought that you had to be a doctor or a lawyer uh, you know I mean look at the zeitgeist back then the, the hottest shows were about doctors or LA law like it was ER or LA law and uh, so the only thing I could actually think about doing was to be a doctor or a lawyer so I chose medicine and did awesome in organic chemistry mm. and, you know but like then uh when i interned one summer thankfully uh i worked at mount sinai and i went on rounds with like the head of nephrology which is a kidney doctor couldn't have picked like the worst (laughs) 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 uh queasy inducing uh (laughs) profession in the medical field and i literally threw up on a a dialysis patient so uh so I knew not to do that. I was curious about doing that and I threw up. So I didn't know what I would do for my career. And uh, I wanted to live in New York and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so uh, I, uh, I, I was curious about entertainment because I actually graduated in cultural studies uh at brown and i just literally didn't know anybody in the business i didn't know how to start i learned uh that they all read variety at that point variety was the one that everybody read Mm. not hollywood reporter Mm. and i would literally study the trades as if they were a history textbook which as i told you i learned how to be good at school and how to find the heartbeat of the information. So I saw all these people who got promotions and I faxed them a letter and I said, you don't know me. I'd love to, I'm thinking about film. And that's how I got my first job in Hollywood.
0: What was your hit rate on these letters as a percentage, do you think?
1: Say that again? What was your hit
0: rate? Like how many people would get back to you as a percentage?
1: Like I said, I had that charming personality and I would you know, call their offices and basically say, you know, I faxed, you know, your boss a letter. And I don't know if you know about Hollywood culture. I mean, if you've seen, uh, entourage, uh, I actually consider entourage to be a documentary, I suppose. <laughs> you know, you have an assistant always answering an executive or producers phone or an agent, and they'd be like Brian Grazer's office. And I'd say, hi, my name is Brad Grossman. I sent you a letter. I'd love to meet your boss. All I want is like five minutes. I'm curious about the, you know, and it's funny, Brian's, it's a very similar thing. I think that's why we were connected. Uh, and I got these meetings and every meeting that I had, everybody would introduce me to five other people. Wow. And so I literally, at the age of like mid 20s or whatever, uh, I, I learned LA too, because I would go back and forth, like all over Hollywood, uh, Los Angeles to meet with these people. And finally, I got the money shot. Like I met with one guy and he's like, you know what? I actually am looking for an assistant. So it was part curiosity, part autodidact type of personality. And hustle and perseverance and uh, uh, it's funny. Can I, can I have a copy of this bag, like the off footage, so I could send to my uh, uh, partner? I'm writing a book on
0: yeah, of to know What
1: to know, and I'm like, I don't know. Uh, yeah, like, like I think you're helping me figure this out right now. So part curiosity, part autodidactism, if there's a word, part hustle part charm to kind of, you know, connect with people and know how they tick and how, you know, and I guess my meetings were successful because I figured out how to have a common uh, conversation with them so that they could be inspired and not be annoyed by somebody who's just looking for a job. And like where everybody like just blows people off in that business, like every meeting turned into, you know, five new people that I met with and then I landed as the uh, assistant to the executive uh, this is an interesting dot connection which I just realized uh, the executive vice president of production and while I was working with him he was overseeing the production of Charlie's Angels yeah. so like, that was wow that's, that's full like, circle Charles. I never even thought about that isn't that interesting is this Michael
0: Costigan uh, you're referring to
1: Michael Costigan
0: uh, Costigan That's oh, okay. right. yeah yeah
1: Yeah. Do you know him?
0: No, I was just, I did my research, obviously.
1: Oh, yeah. No, he's a, God, I I guess he's like one of my first mentors. And I learned about, what did I learn from Michael? Michael was really good with connecting people and knew like what people wanted uh, and was really good at story, understanding story uh and like a narrative of how to make a movie pop so Mm. you know in everything that i do i think of like an evolving cultural narrative yeah and so i would say that i learned that from michael and he taught me how the whole business ran but then i left the business which is interesting of how uh if you care about this because this is the most essential part go ahead go ahead please is that so michael left the studio and I didn't want to be an assistant again because, like, if you watch Entourage, you <laughs> – that, 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 Anyway, being an assistant in Hollywood sucks. Uh, you know, you learn everything, but it's really – especially back in the 90s. Um, and
0: uh, What did your days and, look like? I what mean, did they look sorry, like? What? what? did they look like, the days? You said it sucked.
1: What, 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 say that again one more time. What
0: did your days look like as an assistant?
1: Oh, they—they they, they haven't changed. Talk about a business that hasn't changed or innovated uh, over, <laughs> since, since, like the Louis B. Mayer days and the what is it the twenties, twenties thirties. You know, it's a, the way it, it worked is that you. Ran the person's office. Like you were basically what they would traditionally call back in those days a secretary, Mm. but we weren't secretaries by trade. Like we weren't like career assistants. We were uh, people who wanted to learn about the movie business, which is probably one of the most unique businesses. And you learn by shadowing your boss and uh, answering every phone call and saying, hey, Michael Costigan's office. And then you would be on the phone, listening to the conversations. I think it's the same way right now. And which is creepy, right? Like you you always knew somebody else was on the phone. Uh, that's why somebody like Harvey Weinstein probably got, you know, he did horrible things, but like look how many people knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. Because you're like, as an assistant, you know, every single thing, you're literally traveling with them everywhere. Uh, so I would just answer the phone every day and I would uh, keep what they called a phone sheet where everybody who called and it was like a rolling call culture right so like an agent who's trying to pitch let's say drew be- well, drew barrymore like a oh, fine an agent who basically saying drew barrymore would, would be perfect for this role i know mm-hmm. you know you're trying to you know green light move this movie forward uh i'm pitching drew barrymore uh, or the other way around, Michael would be like, "I want Drew Barrymore for this movie." He would call the agent and be like, "You know, I want you to read this script." So, you know, there was this constant flow between the producers and the studio executives, studio executives with the agents. Mm-hmm. This, um, you know, and so there was a constant uh, uh, c- continuity of aggressive trying to get in touch with each other. And back then, people didn't really have blackberries or, uh, email was just emerging yeah. back. Then the emails were really just to like kind of set meetings because you always had to respond to the boss at that point. It was Amy Pascal who was his boss, who was like running, was the chairperson for Sony, uh, studios for, for like, wow, a really, really long time. And so that's what I would do all day. I was, you know, there would be, everybody would call Amy wants to see Michael. And so I would have to tell Michael. Michael would leave, go see Amy, and then I would just field the phone. And obviously they couldn't talk to Michael so Michael was in a meeting. And I would set up all the meetings, too, as an assistant. Every assistant did. So let's just say Ari Emanuel would call and be like, I want Mark Wahlberg on this meeting. And I would say, well, Michael's in a meeting. Can we return? And it's not Ari calling me. It's Ari's assistant calling me to get to Michael. So so it's like, OK, so Ari's assistant calls. Hey, I have Ari Emanuel for Michael Costigan. And I'd be like, "Hey," and I couldn't even bullshit with these assistant because like Michael would get pissed off. Ari, that doesn't happen right away, even though we knew each other. And all the assistants would go for drinks and gossip about their bosses, <laughs> but uh, and that didn't happen until like nine o'clock at night because we were literally there until nine <laughs> o'clock at night. And so Ari's assistant would be like, "Hi," ah, and I'd be like, "Can we return?" <laughs> and so they're like, "Yes, absolutely. Uh, call us at two three one and so I put Ari Emanuel on the phone sheet, and then Ari would jump on the phone, tell Michael, "I want Mark Wahlberg to be in this movie." And so I said, "Okay." And so you know, the, so the agents would work the the assistants, and we all wanted to please everybody. So oh my God, Ari Manuel's talking, to and so Michael would come down and be like, uh, "Who called?" Like <laughs> who called? I would have to go. Well Ari called. What did Ari want? He wants to talk about Mark Wahlberg. Uh Sid Gannis was a producer. He called. You know, he wants to talk about the script that he wants you to read right away. Uh and I would just go down the list of like fifteen people and he would basically be uh he'd go in his office, we wouldn't even see each other. Only when he would come back and out for meetings. And uh he would basically what the hell is it called? Uh, I don't remember the name. It was like so old school. It would be this like machine where he would type "get Ari. Uh and it would be like it would be like uh, like you know a chat on Gmail or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like
1: that. Uh, but we had like these. they weren't dictaphones. I forgot what the fuck they were called. <laughs> uh, and uh, you'd be like, "Get art." It was like in, like it looked like uh, you probably don't know this. It's like a, like like a. Not a, not a uh, digital watch back in the day. Okay. When the numbers were like straight and blue and there would be separate, you know. So it'd be like, get Ari. So yeah. I get Ari and uh, I, I say, hey, i have Michael Costigan. Hey, Ari's assistant. Let's call him Lloyd. Hey, Lloyd, I got Michael Costigan for you. Lloyd well, would be like, one moment and Ari would jump on. Hey. And I'd be like, one moment for Michael. Michael Ari's on and I would have to type it and then he would have to get it. it's like crazy. Jesus. And then I would listen to the whole phone call and Ari would be like, I want Mark Wahlberg on this. Can I have the script? and so michael would be like of course yes okay let's see it and so i would then have to pack up the script i would have to photocopy the script there were photocopy machines i don't even know if you've ever seen one of those <laughs> copy this sh- put brads in they're called and i didn't call them brads because my name was brad but they were like these fasteners like they would have a, a bulb and then two metal things that probably you put them in the hole punchers yeah and you know you put it and you would have to put ari's name like digitally across every page. So like if he showed it to somebody and like when anywhere, we would know that Ari fucked up. And uh then, you know, I would have to messenger it yeah. to Ari, who messengered it to Mark Wahlberg. And uh it, it was a constant thing. And I had to know everything in my brain. Right, and I was right. actually re- a lot of people who made in Hollywood And this is probably why I (laughs) uh, decided to go into Hollywood uh, full time to start. This was, you know, we're horrible assistants. I was like an amazing assistant. I was like, so autodidactic and overachieving like that. I made sure all my eyes were dotted and all my teeth were crossed. And you know, Hollywood definitely teaches efficiency, probably in a very despotic way but it teaches you about making sure things get done.
0: Right, right. So tell me so, this. So so yeah, as you said- yeah, my- So
1: that was my day. That and was amazing. Like, yeah, and then I would organize and then prepare, and then I would go to the office, and then Michael would roll calls, it's calling from his car, right? And because there were cell phones in those days in 1999, and uh, he'd be like- Hi, anything new? I'm like, yeah, we still have to call this, 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 this. What did he want again? Or what did she want again? Well, and then he's like, get me this person. And so he would, so I would get Ari's assistant again. They would say, hold on. Ari would be driving in as well. So then we're basically connecting the both of them through their cell phones. So manual scheduling meetings, and then if like Mark Wahlberg showed up at the studio, I had to make sure he, he would have a drive on. They still do that, and then uh, I would have to greet Mark, make sure he has a drink. We had every be- like luxury drink you could possibly <laughs> order, uh, and uh, coffee wasn't that good in those days. Uh, it wasn't as artisanal. Yeah, and, uh, and they would have the meeting, and I would get. Uh, yeah. What would what, what would he say? oh, if somebody called and was urgent, like Ari would call, I need to talk to Michael right away, and I would have to knock on the door, and there's these things called buck slips. They're like bookmarks that you put in the script with the person's name on it, and uh, he would write on a buck slip. I would write on a buck slip. Uh, Ari's on the phone. He'd be like, oh, excuse me one moment, and he literally would like go to his bathroom and then talk to Ari because he didn't want to do it in front of Mark Walton. So-
0: wow. <laughs> that's, that's-, that's amazing. <laughs>
1: uh, and then I would go with a drink and the- within a and maybe read a script
0: that's amazing so, so brad tell me this. so you so michael leaves the studio right yeah. and then i read from your profile that it seems like you book be, you become a tutor so know, yes. how how and does this happen
1: an again and so i did I, I tried to get my next job yeah which would was, they it was so disparaging but they called the role it was a creative executive a development executive that person was the person who was supposed to track all the scripts that the studio would possibly buy hmm. and uh it, we, we called it tracking and uh they actually got paid less than assistance so it's like when you get promoted you're actually getting paid less because that was like their dream job to like hanging out with writers and doing all that kind of stuff instead of just answering phones yeah uh but uh i tried to get that job and i I don't know i just never it would always be between me and the other person Mm -hmm. and uh uh i i would always lose out i think they were threatened that was always my (laughs) my conclusion. but you know so i i didn't get that development job i stayed i I, but i stayed in the business because i was still passionate about it by creating my own organization called out in television film and this Mm -hmm. was in 2000, 2000 Yeah. Before, so like that coincided with Michael leaving the studio, which was in two thousand. Then two thousand one, uh, I, I, I start. No two thousand. I started. I put, kept one foot in the door while I tried to find that next job, and it was out until I was in television, film, and was like we sent emails. I think because that was the birth of emails, telling people about events. Two thousand events. Educational events I would host, like I would have panels about how to be gay in Hollywood. Uh, This was like before so many people were out. This is two thousand. I was
0: going to say this is early, right? Sorry, this is early. That's very, very early.
1: I think it was before like Brian Lord, you know, who was like the you know one of the most influential agents uh, in like before he came out. May I could be wrong, but I'm just saying people weren't out right there. So our goal was to uh increase visibility for the glbt community mm-hmm. uh to help each other get our uh reach our highest potential again highest potential yeah. uh which i do now and uh fight for equal rights and benefits because uh, we didn't have equal rights and benefits there with the studio system and the agencies so uh, that was my role and I would have like uh, we had this Oscar party it was like like in a Frank Lloyd Wright house like it was like wow. we did amazing things and so I did that that was like a free thing Yeah, yeah. and I, and then the other thing that I did was to make uh, to make money I didn't want to wait tables like yeah, a lot yeah. of people who are aspiring Hollywood people and uh, uh, I started tutoring people in chemistry because as you know, I was a pre-med student and I uh, was really good at chemistry and I started tutoring high school kids in yeah. chemistry and I created this little business that started you know, rising in success called Institutor. Uh, it would be like get your scores up in no time and I did chemistry, I did SATs. I actually had people, tutors working for the company, and that's when I started that led to Brian Grazer. Like I thought I was done with how. I was like, I'm like, I'm creating I'm making more money by being a tutor. Yeah. Uh, I had this vision. In fact, I was about to sign a lease in Westwood to have my tutoring shop where wow. you know, but I was going to everybody's houses. And every time, like, all the kids were, like, fucked up kids from, like, the Hollywood establishment, I got all of a sudden in that world. Yeah, and I really connected with, you know, the people in Hollywood, the power players. Like, I tutored, like... A uh, couple Oscar award-winning producers' kids. I tutored Gia Coppola. Uh, I tutored, you know, who's Francis Ford Coppola's granddaughter, mm. Jamie Curtis's kids. Uh, it was like I tutored uh, an actor, uh, Camilla Bell, uh, at her ha- on set. So wow. I kind of was like I got into the Hollywood system uh, through tutoring. And I connected with these people on like an executive level because they were like, oh, my God, help me with my kid. And we would talk right, about them. Right. And then all of a sudden, I got that call from Brian Grazer. It's office. Not Brian Grazer. Hi. You know, I have Brian Grazer for you. I'm like, Brian Grazer, like the producer. And I'm like, you know, thinking like, you know, maybe this maybe he wants to talk to me about tutoring his daughter and they're actually you know what Brian just had to jump on another call. But could you come in tomorrow? And I'm like, come into his office. Why am I not, like, why don't I just go to his house? Like, let's just all right We don't have to see him in his office. He's like, he just likes meeting interesting people. And he heard that you're like the best tutor in LA. Uh, and he'd love to meet you. So that's when the whole Brian Grazer part of my life started. I came in to uh, meet with him. And he, it was funny. I remember he opened his door with his, like, you know, his shining charisma with his <laughs> spiky hair. Right. I don't know if you know, Brian, and, right. You know who he is. He's like, hundred percent. Like cool haircut. Like, yeah. Ant- I love that. I said this Albert Einstein with his iconography that he created himself. And he literally back then it was right after he won an Oscar for a beautiful mind, right after he did, uh, uh, eight mile and blue crush and 24. Like it was like, during Brian's. like, I mean, yeah, he was anyway. Uh, so it was like right in the middle of like Brian's, you know, First part of like the ultimate success obviously like he's midas and he continues to uh succeed in yeah. fact like he's still relevant in the zeitgeist because splash was his first movie or one of his first like second movie actually and disney put it on disney plus and it's all over social media yeah uh, about splash uh so like, he's, he's it's amazing so i kind of uh saw him i met him and he comes out of his office, like like I said, with like alacrity, cheerfulness, uh, and curiosity. He's like, "Look who it is! It's the tutor of the stars!" And I'm like, "Wow!" And literally, I couldn't care less about you know, I like know no uh, seductive tendencies, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, this guy's a Academy Award-winning producer. I can't wait to, for him to pay me three hundred fifty dollars to tutor his kid." <laughs> uh, but I, you know, did it anyway. And he sits me into his office. He closes the door after this. Assi- and then the, the door opened with his assistant carrying like an espresso for him and me. And we're in his office and he's like, looking me up and down, observing, trying to kind of come up with a million questions in his head because he's obviously curious too. Yeah. And he basically at the end of the conversation, actually, did you want to hear the details? It's actually really I
0: fun. would love to, go ahead, go ahead. Uh,
1: so I'm sitting there. He's like, what do you do? You're the tutor. Like, what is it? What do you tutor? And I actually said, you know what? I, I don't think of myself as a tutor. I think of myself as an academic coach. And, you know, he's like, what, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and I go, an academic coach. My job is to help my students reach their fullest potential, right, to help them learn about chemistry so they could get the A in the test, even though they're getting a D. And, you know, I don't think I, you know, I, when I tutored them on the SATs, I literally would like be a coach, like yelling and screaming, like, like, you know, like then I see them like taking practice tests. Like, I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? You're supposed to plug in, like stop like work backwards. There were all these terms that I learned in Princeton review, which was the the, you know, the most influential Mm. testing Mm. company back then. And, uh, so I and he's like, what the heck is that? I mean, you're a tutor. I'm like, come on, don't, don't, don't uh, inflate yourself. I'm like, what? <laughs> he was kidding. I mean, that's Brian's humor. But uh, so he's like, okay. So what do you tutor? You use the word tutor again. Yeah, right, right. I said it. You know, starting with chemistry. He's like, chemistry. Uh, okay. And he takes like this periodic chart, like from behind his couch, <laughs> sofa, and he'd be like, I. I here's a periodic chart. Like, like, like tell me, like, like I, I know what it is, but like teach me what all these things are. Mm. Cause he was so curious, unlike me. And he would say this, he was like, I was a straight A student, he was a straight F student. <laughs> uh, he, he's self-proclaimed dyslexic. And you know, mm. he learns from interacting with people. And so he takes out the periodic table and he's like, okay, teach me, I guess chemistry wasn't his thing. And uh, like I said, uh he definitely said that he was a straight f student i was a straight a student so i can understand why he wasn't as uh intensely uh, uh desirous of getting the a on the chemistry test yes. so i you know i basically walked him through the periodic table and i was like you know these are metals and these are non-metals and then these are noble gases and basically chemistry is all about a metal and a non-metal coming together to produce a new thing a compound it was called uh, or a molecule and these are the noble gases and think of the the metals as males they have penises and the non-metals as females and they want penis. I guess <laughs> this is what I said. I don't know if I could say this these days. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: but uh, you know, because but the metals had electrons, and I'm telling you, like truth. And mm. the non-metals needed electrons, yeah. right? Yeah, so It's the plus and minus, right? I remember as, that. male and the female come together, and they create a baby. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the, the noble gases already had all the uh, electrons that they needed, and they were uh, they never had sex right <laughs> so he's like wow i never heard anybody tell me things like that before and i'm like he's like what else do you tutor i'm using the word tutor i'm like well i do history i do sats mm-hmm. uh he's like well i love history I, I mean i'm a movie producer i mean i make movies about things that happened in the past mm-hmm. and uh and and i also do calculus and he's like calculus what exactly is calculus and i basically said to him calculus is the study of limits and boundaries in a multi-dimensional space he's like wow he's like okay i don't want you to tutor my daughter i want you to tutor me and i said what in what like are you going back to school he's like no you know about the business i just could feel it i've always wanted this person and he tried before Mm. to be his cultural attache to kind of be his tutor of things that he was interested in Mm. and you know he had little time and you know that's how he learns from listening to other people and I had this job where like I would just brief him about the world and find interesting people to bring to him and many of them turned into movie ideas and actual movies and television shows and you know he I brought in like maybe over 300 people to meet with him Wow. So, and then I would read everything that that, that uh, the that person had written or been talked about in the press. Like you, like you would have been perfect for this job, because mm. uh, you know I would read all the press about people mm. and kind of help him uh, figure out, you know, how to gain his uh, bolster his curiosity through these meetings. And help them, you know, I guess I was like, somebody called me like, I'm like the uh, Hollywood Charlie Rose. Like my job would to kind of brief him for the, or a sidekick, right? Yeah, I probably yeah. was like Paul Schaefer. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're too young for this, for the David Letterman show. Maybe you're not too young. I know like that I one, was, yeah. And I was in every meeting, 300. I would just take notes and then we would kind of figure out what we learned from these people. And wow. I did that for five years.
0: And it would just be all you, like you would, you would create.
1: Just me. I literally. Well, I. I did the best part of the story it was like, okay, so what do you mean? And he's walking me to like, one like in a like an, another one of his offices, which he was like his library, and it was like filled with books, like mm. think like not as big, but like Belle from Beauty and the Beast when she walks into, you know, the Beast. Great like, reference. Yeah. Walk me into this room with like gazillion books a pile of magazines and newspapers remember this was 2003 mm. uh and uh books and scripts and he's like this is your workshop uh just learn and wow. connect dots and teach me and bring in people to teach me so he's like there there's your office teach me about the world was his club wow
0: so, yeah. so so tell me this so you you do that Um, I'd read that he had been hiring people like this for 20 years. And I also read that when you left, there was nobody to replace you. So you clearly did this very well.
1: Right, right. Well, that's the thing. It even says in that New Yorker piece, thank you, uh, that he tried having people before and he tried to, he, he, this is a great story. Uh, he hired one person to try and do this. Mm. And he basically, there were two people, there are two stories. Uh, one, two different people. He's like, uh so like tell me about like what that wall street journal piece you know said today let's talk about it because that was my job right Uh, like you would call me up at six in the morning and you like walk me through that maureen dow piece let's talk about it like what's what's the inside there That that was my job uh maureen dow the op-ed uh
0: yeah unreal
1: Times, uh, and then he'd be like, "Wow, she's interesting. Let's uh, let's meet her." <laughs> I would call her up. And she'd come into the office. <laughs> like that was my job. Yeah. And uh, he'd be like, "So what did uh that Wall Street Journal?" But he's like, "You know what? The Wall Street Journal didn't uh, wasn't delivered to my door today." And uh, this is like pre online. It's like pre Huffington Post. And uh, and he'd be like, "You're fired." Like, what do you mean? You're, you know like you didn't read it because then go to your you know, like like where's your curiosity didn't you want didn't you want to read like I'm hiring you to be curious and find mm-hmm. the, the article and like you, you should know me too and that was the most art interesting article so he's like you're fired so that was one person wow uh, the other person uh, <laughs> this is crazy you, you would see he saw him in the hallway and he'd be like so uh, what's going on he'd be like nothing he's like I'm not hiring you to like not do anything like like why uh, you don't have anything interesting to say so that's the other person and then after those two people did work out he had his uh, his team of development executive people who actually made movies right and he would uh uh tell them you know they, they actually had they all had like the brilliance about brian is that even though everybody had similar jobs to read scripts and make movies, Mm. they were all, they all had a different shtick. Like they had a different gimmick. So like he hired one person who was like an expert in nightlife, one person who bought his art for him, even though they were doing the movies. yeah. one person who was a sports aficionado and you know, he would ask them to kind of just keep making lists of like interesting people. It was like the famous, interesting person list. And it's actually published in this book, I think. Uh, And it just, I don't think anybody took it as seriously. I mean, they were getting paid to make movies. They'd be like, okay, Brian wants to meet his interesting people. And then like one day, I I heard the story like literally a week before I got hired. uh, He's like, where are my interesting people? Nobody's taking this seriously. Don't you understand? This is the most important job. For me to be a producer, I need to meet interesting people to inspire me in story ideas. Like, if you don't find me interesting people, then you're not going to have jobs because mm. I'm not going to have any inspiration to make great movies. So mm. they, they were all like, and he's like, what is, like, have you heard of this guy, Brad Grossman? And like, you know, and then there was one person who actually just you know, thought about me as he's like, I think they all told him, Brian, you need to have one person do this. And there's a friend of mine, David Bernardi, who mm. was production executive there, and he's like, Brian, you know, here's this guy, Brad Reston, who's he's a tutor. He's so curious. He's interested in so many things, like you let's meet him, And
0: Wow. And
1: that was that put like the the nail yeah uh put put the you know nail in the, nail the coffin. Yeah, him, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Because like he already heard about me being this tutor and then David Bernardi and them
0: right yeah. so,
1: so i mean i guess there are people before me but it
0: right know, like, yeah I, you, you know
1: you, I, that my mythology like everybody wrote about this relationship i had with brian uh like in every piece that you know featured him uh that led to the new yorker piece that led to peter bart saying brian's brain and then uh yeah. here we are
0: so tell me this years later, so 12 you, years later. You, you have so you have the entire world at your fingertips and obviously, that's a great responsibility, and it sounds like an amazing job, but you can also choose the wrong person, as I guess I'm interested.
1: Well, I mean, you saw that. I I, I literally, when I decided to move on and that New Yorker piece came out, like there were hundreds of resumes. That yeah. And Brian, <laughs> there were four people that I chose. He hated them all, and he never really you know, replace me, I don't think. I mean, that's what I heard. And actually, you know what, that, that is true because he hired me, if I forgot, as a consultant afterwards. Yeah, once you started Psycho. him and Ron doing the same thing. But so. I'm talking
0: about his get the, the interesting people he met. Did you ever get that awfully wrong or particularly right? Like, how did that go? What was the feedback? Did I ever fail
1: at bringing an interesting person? Or,
0: or just like, oh, they weren't as interesting as I thought they'd be, you know?
1: There was no meeting. That was you could always learn something from somebody right so you know everybody has a heartbeat of uh being interesting mm, i think mm, mm. even if they don't know they're interesting like if you're a curious person then you could find the interesting dna of that particular person so uh i mean there were a couple meetings that didn't go well i remember Wow, this is so ahead of the time. Like uh, again, I think the early two thousands, there was a New Yorker piece that Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this guy named Dick Copagan, who started a. I can't believe I remember this. A company called Epigogics. Okay. You should look it up. It's okay, like, I will. You know, back when everybody read the New Yorker, everybody read this piece, <laughs> and it was about Dick Copagan who uh, had basically whatever AI was back then, Mm. uh, a machine that would uh, evaluate or analyze a script and tell you if it was gonna be a success or not. And I never had seen Brian get madder in my life. Like, he's like, who do you think you are? Like, you know, a machine can't fucking replace human creativity. The fun, this was before like digital and like I'd never see Brian get so mad in my life I mean it yeah I mean so that was that meeting didn't go well at all
0: That's amazing. but then
1: I think at the end like uh Brian what he what did he learn from that we both talked I mean that was our my job like we talked about like so what did we learn from that meeting right. and what we learned from that meeting is that sometimes people might have an idea right and it might be a brilliant idea mm. but it's the wrong person to sell the idea. Right. And I think that's that was like a eureka moment for me because it's like, yeah, there's so many entrepreneurs who Mm. have an idea who can't get it off the ground because they're just not the right person to communicate it. Right. You know, so, you know, Dick, although epigogic was an interesting idea, Dick was definitely the wrong salesperson. He also had a huge ego about it, too. Like, you're going to fucking not have a job because I have the the, the architecture of making a movie successful.
0: I've read that you would design these like Hillary Clinton, like one page kind of like dossiers. And so how would you design them? And then how would you tell a story about the individual? How would you go through that process? Because it that's quite difficult, right? Once you've read the 14, 15 books and articles on X, Y, Z, you then right. have to synthesize I love the word consilience. You have to find right. the place and where everything e. meets.
1: came up with that. We met him. Yeah. I read that book. We yeah. We brought him in. Yeah.
0: How do you, how, do, how would you design that and how would you learn Brian's style? Because ultimately that's the, the person you're giving oh, off that, to. Well,
1: first of all, I mean, go back to like the brown-nosing stage of like being the teacher's better or whatever, right? Mm. Like, I, you know, and, and, getting my a because i would know what people want i i guess i always first of all you have to listen you got to know the personality and this is like i would say this is what i do now Mm, when i mm. customize my work it's like you need to know the person you need to be open and listen to that person and understand the heartbeat of what, like I said, that makes them interesting and you have to be curious. Like I was was like, what is Brian all about? Like, what is he interested in? What makes him tick? Uh, Why did he make a beautiful mind? Like you you have to be curious, as Brian said that, to succeed in that job. And uh, you have to be curious yourself. So, I don't know, we, we started, it was interesting. At first, like, we didn't really connect. And, just, you know, you didn't. there's nobody to really measure me up against. Uh, and, you know, I, I didn't have as much fear as other people might have in the business because, like, I didn't care about being promoted and producing movies, so I just did my thing, mm, right? Mm. And I got, well, my wrong life feathers got ruffled. You know, you, it was challenging uh, in a great way, right, uh, in right. an inspirational way. And, uh, really we didn't connect like for a year. And I think I just like succeeded. I guess this was like the moment that we were both convinced that this was my job or my calling in life. And which basically evolved into me doing this now, which and started my company in 2010. So it's almost 10 years that I've been doing it on my own. But uh, he gets a call from Ron Meyer. This was 2005, August. Uh So knowing about the cultural zeitgeist back then, that was like after Bush won for the second time, uh, George Bush, second Bush, uh, beat John Kerry. Uh, So that happened in November of 2004. And this was August 2005. And he gets a call from ron meyer who's the chairman of universal pictures and you know he was the studio executive who oversaw brian and ron's a beautiful mind mm. uh, that had a great relationship and actually brian and ron universal uh and russell crow uh made a movie called cinderella man that just was released and so he gets a call from Ron Meyer and he's like, we were just invited by George Bush to show uh, Cinderella man uh, at the white house. And they're going to do a dinner and you know, I, you should come with me. And Ron's like, great. What time are we going? He's like, well, it's tomorrow. I am in New York. So I'm going to fly from New York and I'm going to give you the universal jet to back when that was a, thing and like yeah. everybody had all this money in, in Hollywood and people watch movies on <laughs> uh, and uh, he's like I'm going to give you the universal jet and would love for you to meet me at the White House uh, meet me there at 530 and so Brian's like okay this is like noon LA time so think about it it's 3pm East Coast time and or and uh, he, he calls like, he says this to his assistant, have Brad come in here. And I'm like, and, he, and so she, I get a call and I'm like, oh, Brian's office is calling. Uh, and like, I pick up the phone, Brad Gressman, and They're like, Brian would love to see you. And I'm um, you know, like, okay. And like, uh, So I I think his assistant was Miguel at the time. So I walk into mm-hmm. his office and I'm like, Jess, Brian, what's going on? he's like, so, you know, it's, I don't know, like what this job is supposed to be. And I don't know, you know, like, uh, what should we do? But like, let's do, let's try this out. I guess he was testing me and he's like, I'm going to DC tomorrow. I want you to choose two people I should meet with there and you're going to come with me. And as I always did, you know, uh, you know, because I'm, and you're going to teach me on the plane, everything I need to know about those people and do your thing, just teach and tell me what I need to know. And, uh, you're gonna, drop me you know and then uh, after those two meetings you're going to drop me off at the white house at 5:30 sharp and he's like no actually i'm going to drop you off the white house and you got to find your way back home and i'm like really he's like yeah and so i flew there private and i flew back coach like in the last seat of the plane next to the bathroom so i like, <laughs> so uh, wow. anyway so i'm like fuck it's like noon uh three o'clock l new york time i gotta find these fucking two people before tomorrow at six thirty. and i'm like you know because my job was to bring in interesting people from all walks of life from yeah. every industry uh i have great relationships with people in politics yeah 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 so I call him, I'm call like, fuck, i got to find two people here with Brian. Tomorrow, blah, 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 blah. And so I did it. And I uh, had it all worked out. I researched all night the night before so I could be smart on the plane when I briefed him. Yeah. And I'm there at like 630. And then he comes in and he's walking up uh, the stairs of uh, the jet. And he, he called me hotshot on those days. I remember that he like comes up and he's like, hey, hotshot, what, what, what do you got for me? And so there are were two people that I had lined up. Mm. And he's like, I'm like, well, Brian, and mind you, 2005, very important part of the story, 2005, the year after Bush uh, beat Kerry. Not a year, sorry, uh, a few months and so uh, he also wanted to know everything about George Bush too, so you know which had to do. So uh, I said, well, first we're gonna go, we're gonna get dropped off in like whatever time. And we're gonna go to the new side of the Senate. And we're gonna meet with that guy who gave that great speech at the Democratic National Convention uh, in August a year ago. And he'd be like, Barack Obama? I'm like, yeah, we we're meeting Barack Obama. And he got all excited and I'm like, oh. God, uh, that was a success. And the night before I read his book, I dreamed about my father, or whatever it's called. I yeah. learned about yeah. you know, you know, his relationship with Kenya and Hawaii and, uh, all, all the stuff. And I skimmed it and i like, he's like, wow, that's great. And I'm like, <sighs>
0: <laughs> that's amazing. So,
1: wait, so how are you going to beat that? It was the other person you're meeting. I'm like, well, then we're going to go to the other side of the Senate, the old side of the Senate and we're going to meet with John McCain 2005. Wow. That was three years before they actually ran against each other in 2008.
0: How did you come up with McCain? What? How did you come up with McCain?
1: Why? Why did I thought he was in the zeitgeist? Yeah. Well, first of all, I I think Brian and I have had conversations of great leaders, and Brian was always interested in, like, war generals. and So, like, I I knew Brian would be interested in him. Mm. But also he was in the zeitgeist because I think there was, like, a back in the days when people watched cable linear tv i think it was like tnt or something that did uh, a film uh made for television we used to call it made for television film on his experience of being uh uh imprisoned in vietnam so like i, I think that was the that was the reason why because i always had to bring in zeitgeist people yeah which yeah came. You know, my company's called Zeitgeist.
0: Let's transition so, uh, to that, Brad. Let's transition to that. So I'm fascinated. How did how did you know it was time to leave? And you and I, I, I found it really interesting that you, you know, decide to leave, right? October 2008, it looks like. Right.
1: people are like, that's a dream job. How can you leave that job? Right, right.
0: especially that, at the economic I, times. And then you spin out Zeitgeist. So, talk me through that decision-making process, and maybe even well, talk I about. Why decided to move on? Yeah, and then it why build Sitegeist?
1: It was a hard thing for me to figure out. I, I, uh, I, I guess there was a part of it where I would say the main thing is like I love Brian. I've been doing it for five years. It's been amazing, um, but now I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to, you know, I, I obviously from hearing my story, I've always been entrepreneurial. In fact, ah, yeah. I guess I was like an entrepreneur in residence when I did that job with Brian, because like I had to figure this job out and do something that was completely new. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was that, that was that part of the, this did uh, the be a reason why I wanted to go out on my own. Uh, I was itching to do something new. And I would say the second thing is like, I wasn't interested in making movies. Right. I mean, I, I love movies mm-hmm. and there were moments, I love the idea phase of making a
0: right but
1: like making movies i I don't know i just i didn't want to make them They're like it takes so long to make and i don't know i I just i love what i did and uh yeah that was the main thing i didn't i had no interest in continuing the movie business on that level at that time right uh i wanted to and also the other part the main part was that i wanted to move back to new york So I grew up in Jersey, my family's here, like, you know, I'm here in Connecticut at my brother's house as we're self-quarantining ourselves. So family, I learned was really important. Mm. And I also love New York. I mean, I'm like, I'm heartbroken right now that I'm not in New York.
0: What do you love Um, about New York? What, sorry? What do you love about New York?
1: Freedom. Freedom. And it's like the best place to exercise my curiosity. Right? Like I'm just, and I'm walking, I feel free. Like in LA, I just felt so stultified being trapped in a car all the time. Although like LA is like, I mean, since then I left in two, uh, 2010, 2009, 2010. And, uh, I, I, I don't know. I just felt it, it was time to go back home and I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I just love New York. Uh, it was, it, it, yeah, LA, by the way, since then became, it was very Hollywood centric then, more so now. It still is in mm-hmm. some way. Uh, but ho- Hollywood definitely, where the old system of Hollywood definitely has been displaced by the Netflix mm. of, of react, the Netflixian reality. So I would say everybody kind of became like Hollywood felt like they were the less at the center of the universe, yeah. Maybe that field again. Now that everybody's watching entertainment, right? But right. That, that was number one. So, but and since I left, like the food scene, the art scene, the fashion scene, and uh, it definitely developed. I, I actually attributed to uh, downtown didn't really exist back then, and downtown LA. So I would say that Uber and well, maybe Uber was the one that really developed Los Angeles into what it is today, which is so much more interesting to me today than it was back then mm. because it connected the different pockets of LA and allowed those pockets to develop, including downtown. So uh, back then I wasn't, I didn't love LA as much as I love now. and New York, again, I love walking
0: and yeah. discovering. So what was day one of Zeitgeist? Like, bring me into that.
1: Oh God. It wasn't called Zeitgeist on day one. It was called grossman of partners which oh. back in the day 2009 it was ahead of its time sounds like a law firm yeah. well that's that's <laughs> what people thought like what are you a lawyer and i actually i had like letter pressed very beautifully tastefully like graden carter vanity fair type style business yeah, 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 yeah. cards like they were like really thick and, and it just said grossman of partners and I did it because I wanted people to have some sort of curiosity. Like, what is that? It also, I wanted to emulate like that. There was like taste involved, like, there, you know, like I love old school, uh, like beautifully designed. And, and then like, I guess people will be like, like be actually a little bit condescending, be like, who are your partners? And I say, everybody I work with. This is 2009 or 10, like before everybody's called their clients, their people that work with partners, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then it wasn't until I don't know, like one day I woke up in the middle of the night, and you're like, "What about Side Guide?" And I, I trademarked it here we and, are and then i produced an actual i like, called it zeitgeist like the company was gross and a partner still yeah and zeitgeist would just literally a printed and it was digital too uh but it seemed like it was like on mimeograph paper Which was like a guide. Like I was thought of it as a cultural almanac, a guide, a very short digest that would tell you everything you needed to know uh, across industries. And it ended up being uh, this, and I still do it actually in print. People still buy it on my website, zyguy.com, and it, yeah, it still exists. I've been doing it for ten years. Uh, which is crazy. And so that was the Zeitgeist guide. But then after a while, after it was so hard to explain to people what I do, right. I changed the name of the company Zeitgeist Cause you know, if you know what Zeitgeist means, you, you get that it's the guide to the Zeitgeist. And so instead of it being the, the, mm. the book Zeitgeist guide, it became, I'm the Zeitgeist guide, right? right? Like it's like, I'm your Zeitgeist coach. I'm guiding you through the Zeitgeist and helping you make sense of it, connecting the dots and leading you to the future keeping you culturally relevant.
0: So how would you go about finding your partners, your clients, for lack of a better term? Like, was it through connections yeah, well, you New met York through Grace?
1: really helped? Thank you, Brian Grazer. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. so that helped, but you just faxed so that to that everyone. everyone. I, I, yeah. That's I easy. Mean, I had a lot of relationships through that job. Right. I mean, I knew everybody yeah. in entertainment. Mm. I knew every agent. Uh, in fact, I actually am represented by an agency, uh, and I, I knew, I, I knew those 300 people in their worlds. I knew people in politics. So I guess it was just word of mouth. And then the New Yorker piece said definitely, whenever, like every, it's so funny, like people still remember that article. I mean, you know, it, it, back in the day when everybody read every single article of the New Yorker. Right. And like, it's still, it, people are fascinated like you are. Yeah. That. So that was the calling card, obviously. right and uh it's funny at the in the beginning people are like wow uh like this is what you do for a living that job doesn't exist i could read the fucking newspaper i know how to meet people uh and so and people would say like you're like a luxury and uh we talked about this right 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 right. so it's like what kind of fucking job is that and so and then the world changed right i mean I started my company probably at the worst time ever. It was like literally right after the economic collapse, right, in 2008. Mm. And then people were like being blindsided by the fact that you had all these emerging startups and digital technology was disrupting everything. So like I went from a luxury to a necessity, I guess. Uh, where I was helping legacy companies and CEOs and C-suite executives and their teams understand how the world was changing so quickly, so that they could figure out how to respond to it.
0: Mm-hmm. And it
1: was so- ahead of its time, you know. It was hard to still convince people that they needed something like that, but eventually it all fell into place.
0: So how and yet yeah, how did you respond? And how do you respond? I know we talked about this on the phone of. People feel like they could get this insight from ten newsletters. Like, how do you respond to that?
1: Well there were newsletters back then, by the way. The only one was that guy. Wow. Uh, so uh, I guess it's well. First of all, people don't have as much time. In fact, Gary Vaynerchuk who I did some work for, even him, who's like supposed to know everything, right? Mm. He hired me to help him understand a couple of things. It's not like he doesn't, you know, he's a really smart guy. I mean, clearly he's succeeded, but he'd be like, you're, the, you're you're selling time and trust, right? Like, you know, in a world that everybody's trying to promote themselves and, and uh, people now, not 10 years ago, you know, tout the insights or the trends departments they have everyone knows that when people tell them about trends or whatever Mm. they're trying to pitch them their business so like in the ad agencies they all have these insight intelligence centers but at the end of the day you know they're trying to prove the fact that uh they should hire that agency because they have the smartest intelligence whereas like i was the one that there's this guy badgeron guy at the time he was like Uh, a high level executive marketing executive at Unilever is now at IBM Mm. who would have me come in every month on a different subject. And be like, you're the fair and balanced person. Like you're not selling me, you're just teaching me. So, uh, that's why number one, number two. So, so it's trust Mm. time. Mm. And I always say like, while you're doing your real jobs, right? And you're like spending all day, like in meetings and conference calls and, whatever it is you're um i'm um, reading and thinking like so while you do your real jobs my job is to make sure that everything is being synthesized for you and i'm connecting dots and then it's the delivery right i mean you've been on culture class which is my new product where mm. i'm basically scaling what i do for a wider audience mm. right okay mm. I, I mean i've been doing it for free since the coronavirus uh I created this shelter at home culture. Like I think the first week was like May, uh, March 12th or a couple of days after, whatever was uh, 14th to the 16th week. That was the first week. It's like now, not just working one-on-one with my clients or somebody like Brian Grazer. It's Brian Grazer on scale, right? Yeah. So So uh, you know, my job is really to go through and parse everything out. And obviously, from hearing my own story, my whole story. Yeah. It's a skill set that I developed to kind of understanding and studying the world and digesting and synthesizing and telling you what the, this is the testimonial that Brian gave me. Yeah. You can see on the website, you know, Brad Grossman understands the heartbeat of what matters. So, uh, yeah. I, so we, okay. So you get 10 newsletters. Well, first of all, people don't even have time to look at those 10 newsletters. Right. And they might be skimming it and doing all this, but like, they're just reading headlines. I'm actually reading the articles. <laughs> like you saw my culture class like i highlight the heartbeat of the article
0: i've never seen so many tabs open at once it was unbelievable
1: yeah Yeah, that's my brain brain. (laughs) uh well what do you i'm curious to like what do you think of it i mean it's like a new thing i mean
0: i think it's tremendous i i think the, the real question is where does the learning take place once you hang up zoom and so once i, I hang
1: up yeah well, that's when you have to pay the big bucks
0: right well but it, is <laughs> that
1: one-on-one right,
0: right. So is well no but i'm saying outside well, you of you
1: need to know now what right and then the now what like you just said uh when i was telling you the brian stories about you need to know who they're about right like i can't know what, you know, a thousand people specifically want to know. I know they all want to know what's happening in the world and trends. And I try to provide actionable insights. Like, what does this mean? I'm always asking that, but I feel that it's really important to work one-on-one or one-on-small teams, which is where I make most of my money Mm. because I need to understand where they're coming from. I take, I listen Mm. on a couple meetings meetings, understand like what keeps them up at night. And I, so I think of the team, as like the Brian Christmas. like right, so, right, right, right. It's like now what? You got to hire me uh, to come in so we could actually workshop it. Now I also have the the other culture class. Like this was free, so mm. there's uh, an infinite amount of people who could log on. But you know the premium product of culture classes, I uh, small groups of fifteen, and I get to know everybody on a one-on-one basis and. You know, they, I have virtual office hours. They connect with other people. So yeah. like I know now, uh, I can help them apply this to other things.
0: Yeah. That's brilliant. Tell me, I want to go into that, but tell me what it was like to work for Gary. And was that your idea? Was that his? How'd you meet him? Cause he's super, super, super fast paced.
1: Fast paced. Yeah trying to remember
0: five minute meetings and shit you know i i I watch a lot of his vlog Uh,
1: yeah no i i had to present to him on like programmatic advertising when it was a thing uh shit i don't remember how we got together oh yeah i do remember it was a friend named oh god let me see <laughs> <laughs> my transacted memory in my cell phone. Yeah, you're old. Awesome. Matt Mazio okay. Now I remember Matt okay. Mazio. Okay. He was at CAA at the time, and he he ended up working for God. Another first thing. He was like one of the original investors of Twitter. Uh, shoot. Anyway, Matt Mazio uh, basically. You know, had me uh, introduce me to Gary. And, uh, and Gary was fascinated with what I do. And yeah, so then he hired me.
0: Wow. and I t- he
1: also love the fact that, like, my business partner was my brother at the time. Uh, he was, and he, his, <laughs> and but it's funny both of our brothers don't work for us anymore it shows us about our <laughs> so he had a brother named AJ yeah. Chuck, and I had a brother who I'm at Scott Grossman and they really connected yeah on like the business financial level so and then Gary and I got to be crazy
0: right and so I guess what's t- tell me about Zeitgeist today I know um, you're a you're a big admirer of our of a good friend of mine Heather McGowan and, and yeah she- wow
1: is actually my client right uh, yeah You know, who was the one who got me interested in her uh because he saw her uh speak at their corporate retreat. And you know, he's so fascinating, my client, because uh I don't like to name names, uh, but he is a very influential uh media and entertainment executive uh who's basically running one of the streaming platforms and uh you know he's so curious too like that's the thing that i also learned after these 10 years yeah like my client base you have to be curious i've worked with some of the most influential you know business executives uh and i would say most of my clients are in media advertising entertainment Mm. and consumer facing Mm. industries Mm. Uh, but i'll work with anybody hr is really uh, somebody because, you know, I create learning programs. And that's great for culture. Yeah. But uh, you have to be curious to work with me so that we could both be curious together. Because I'm learning as I'm teaching, right? I'm not going to, you know, clearly I'm a, I'm, an, I'm an expert in the big picture of culture. But like, you know, if you want to learn about programmatic advertising, I can give you the the zeitgeist of it, but we got to find the expert to do it, which is like what Grazer did, right? He found the expert. Mm. Uh, but you know, he was interested in Heather because she wrote a book that's I think is out now, right? Or yeah, is
0: coming it, it just came out yesterday. Adapted,
1: the Adaptive Advantage or something Adaptation like
0: that. Adaptation right? Advantage, yep.
1: And so my client being curious was like, okay, like what does that mean? And like let's learn about that together. So like I'm creating this – Custom curriculum of curiosity mm. for these clients, like a more like the one. I want. I'm a curiosity consultant, so I understand what their curiosities are. He was interested in it. Yeah.
0: And how do you deliver it? So, like, th- will it all be like that? Like, oh, I heard this guy on the radio, or I, I saw Heather speak. Go and figure out what that is and what it means for me. And then, how do you deliver that? Is it? Is it still the dossiers? Is well, it? First
1: of all, tell I uh, that the or she will ask me, "What do you think?" And I'll engage and sometimes I'll be like, ah, that person's a waste of time. Or I'll talk to that person first and be like, eh, you know. But how do I figure out like that Heather would be interesting for him or somebody like that? Yeah, like, like, like this pers- particular person is interested in like, uh, the world's changing so quickly. And I have a new job in a new world in entertainment and media. And how can I be the best version of myself? The world's changing around, right? So like come up with a cultural curriculum for me where Mm. we can learn together. And again, you meet interesting people who are uh, in that space. So it's kind of like what I did for Brian, but now for other people who have more specific, you know, uh, desires of learning. Uh, And you have to be intuitive and, curious you have to be a leader mm. and uh you know the they people want to people can't define themselves by their careers anymore their career might not even exist tomorrow yeah right right i mean look at all the people who are getting furloughed and are unemployed right now i mean those people need to read heather's book
0: right and so how do you think like how you know how does the mind himself you know work through information how, how what filters do you have in your own life So that you can see the signal from the noise.
1: I don't have a filter. (laughs) I, I, there, I mean, first of all, I read a lot. So, you know, first of all, I read a lot. Second of all, as you know, I've been doing this for my entire life. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, I've always been a generalist. Are you a polymath? Are you a polymath? What, sorry? Are you a
0: polymath? Are you polymathic?
1: I've been called that. Yeah. Uh, it's a great, yeah. I've been called that from several people. Mm. Uh, yeah, but polymath, uh, you know, like I would have done great in the renaissance, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we get to what we know to do uh, Da Vinci, like, you know, being like an engineer uh, and an artist. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not comparing the way I mentioned that. <laughs> so, but I, I try to, like, look at the world in different facets and, you know, connect things. But how, uh, like, you know, what drives me is, like, looking at things that create cultural impact like anything that I think is impacting the world or people and you could tell from newsletters like if there is a subject that you know everybody copies each other on these newsletters right These like steal from the New York Times and you know they're they're just you know the, these newsletters basically, recontextualize stuff that's already been written about so if there's five newsletters talking about the same thing I feel like you better pay attention and then what I have time to do that a lot of people don't have time to do is ask why right and why is this impacting these people so that's how I basically sniff Uh, I give things the sniff test right right? Uh, like you know this should be important if everybody's talking about it and the other part is like the cultural narrative right so you know you saw in my culture class the first thing i always do is like corona culture evolves mm. like so first week is this how did the tone or what people think or the impact or what people are saying or what people are thinking week to week so i stay on this like no knowledge narrative let's call it right uh, so that's how i kind of look at things and then i also look at you know, because I uh, my audience, I would say, are cultural, creative, business leaders, right, and entrepreneurs. Mm. And to be a leader today, I feel like you have to understand what I call the four zeitgeist pillars of change, right? Uh, and to be a leader, you obviously have to know about your industry and your company and uh, your consumer and your customers, so yeah. that you can make money. You need to understand how to be. A great leader and a manager and communicator you need to understand how your business is going to continue to be disrupted uh, by digital technology and you also have to understand how the wider world is changing Mm -hmm. so my four buckets of change are global societal issues consumer trends that are you know consumers have more power than ever before Mm -hmm. emerging tech in the workplace and those four buckets of change are constantly evolving right so no. I kind of look at the lens and I say like what are the most important things this week that's happening in the global society that's like shaping everything like what are people talking about like right now everybody's talking about coronavirus right and before everybody's talking about global warming and global protests and and you know the relationship between America and China and uh other issues like mental health that's like the global societal bucket right mm-hmm. the next bucket emerging tech right like uh, the big tech, startups, what is the technology of the year? Whichever you could just find your technology people are writing stuff like, you know, uh, e commerce, uh, AR, VR, AI, 5G, right? So those are the things that I'm interested in, in technology and the impact of technology, right? Like, like the impact of, you know, how there's so much a mental illness. Uh, Because of social media, and then the third thing is consumers, right? Like consumers, like uh, consumers are hard to track because you really need to understand what consumer you want to tap into, Mm -hmm. and they're they have more power than ever before. But you can see how brands are responding to a consumer, right? And then the workplace, like hello, like look, Corona is a perfect example. Look how we're changing the way that we work. Mm -hmm. So. uh, And, you know, uh, people want to work in great places with great culture. And so that's important to my clients. Like Heather McGowan would fit into that bucket, right? Right, right. How to be an adaptive leader. Uh, So so I look at, like, what are the three most interesting things in those four particular buckets? And what can we learn from it? And how are those interesting things uh, evolving?
0: Mm. And I think it's just really interesting because Heather's not a future of work columnist. Um, at any of the major publications, I emailed her back in twenty fourteen, and now she's finally just got her book published after a six year journey with Wiley. love well, that
1: you like Wiley. So like that was like the Wiley agency back in the day, right? And that right. Was but and I think
0: I I think because you know again like,
1: Wiley, he was the I think we met him when we had that job. Yeah, but
0: he was you know they're they're academic, but I I think that's one thing I wanted to bring up just as a final point is. You know, Heather is by far and away, in my you know, in my opinion, and I think everybody's, even your clients yours, I mean she is what is the person who isn't regurgitating what every other future of work, right. work columnist is saying. And she's lived it. But that they aren't the people running the publications anymore. They aren't the people writing in the New Yorker. And that's where I feel like a lot of these newsletters, I mean, they're just regurgitating bollocks from like a, really a journalist it's who's been in the game two that. years.
1: It's kinda of like the I the problem with others is like she's part of the Ivory Tower, right? And then you have like more of the populace. Like Malcolm Gladwell actually got a lot of beef from uh, uh, the scientists that he's written about, like a blink or tipping like, you know, he's basically he has a talent of breaking down and making these big lofty ideas accessible mm. right to I guess I'm guilty of that too. I mean, my, the reason why I was, you know, I worked with my clients is that like, yeah, there are these academics uh, who have brilliant ideas, but I can reconstitute that reconstitute. I could kind of distill and make it accessible for my clients who are more or less academic in a sense. I mean, that is what I'm doing with my client with Heather's book. It's like, you know, reading it and, and her book is great. But understanding who the person that I'm working with, I have to make sure that Heather specifically, her book mm. is specifically relevant to my client, mm. knowing who my client is.
0: Mm. Mm. That's, that, that's really powerful. And I guess just to, just to wrap, Brad, like how do you think about success in this regard? Like how do you know that what you've done, what you've read, what you've shared, is ROI positive for the end user? How do you measure that? How do you think about <laughs> I it? I
1: inspire them to have new ideas that work, right? Uh, if, if 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 you know, why I like for this particular client that we're talking about, like I talk to the assistant, I'm like, How, "How's his management style?" Right now? Like I don't know. It's like interesting. He's mm, like, mm. you know, he's telling me that I shouldn't just think about this role and I should be adaptive in other things, right? So like, you could tell by their teams uh i always try to like end every phone call or meeting with like okay what are the three things that we want to do from this conversation and if they actually do it and and it evolves into something that they're doing i mean my job is to help shape their forward moving strategy on a creative level on a leadership level on a global level and on a technology technological level right and uh that's how I know if they're succeeding, if they become better leaders and other people know or see a change. Uh, if they understand, like one of my clients, you know, worked at Disney and was working on, was one of the leaders working on the uh, uh, creating Disney Plus mm. in the OTT. Like, you know, I was helping that person understand the competitive landscape and, you know, I. Uh, clearly they succeeded I'm not saying that I should get any credit for that but you know you can see that they understand streaming technology which is one of the things uh, uh, telling them about a consumer trend that they capitalized you know whether it's a marketing campaign or a movie that they make uh, and uh yeah, they don't know anything about a particular country, and they go there and they make a big deal. I mean, that's those are the. And if they're just becoming a better person, a better leader, like I said, I I do consider myself to not just be a strategist or an advisor or an educator, mm. but like I'm a coach,
0: mm. right? Mm.
1: I'm like I said back when I was an academic coach you know, my job is to help them reach their fullest potential. And there are many amazing coaches that help you, whether it's helping you become more spiritual, helping you become more organized, better managers, better leaders, better communicators, better speech givers. There's a lot of coaches. My job is to make sure they are culturally relevant. And when I say that, I mean like You need to know what you need to know. I'm helping you know what you need to know so that you can be the most culturally relevant uh, leader that you could possibly be. And if you're culturally relevant, then you're going to be successfully creative. You're going to be successfully resonating with your audience. uh, And you're just going to succeed overall because you'll know what's happening outside of Yourself outside of your company, outside of your industry. Mm. And that's more important today than ever before. And that's my goal.
0: Yeah. Well, Brad, you've been incredibly kind. I end every episode with the same question. Uh, if people want to learn more about you or want to support you during quarantine, life under the quarantine, how can they do
1: so? Oh, wow. Well, they can learn more about me by going to my website, zeitguy.com. Uh, but like I said, I mean, my dream right now, been doing these culture classes, Basically, as a business, right? Like, you know, after working with clients, like I said, like I'm scaling uh, my presentations of helping people stay culturally relevant. Mm. Uh, I would love people to just keep joining as we go through this together, uh, this Corona crisis, to join my culture class, and uh, they'll, you know, they could sign up for my newsletter, which tells them all about it, gives them the link of how to, you know, RSVP and get the Zoom info, but. That's what I would love is for more people to join the culture class. It's really growing, I'm so like humbled by it and excited and honored. Uh, Every week i probably get 50 more people uh, that's joining. So I would love people to do that and just learn like what I'm trying to learn. And I have an expert every week, let's just like learn how to get through this together and how to be successful once this dissipates Mm -hmm. and all come together and create a better world.